Western Montana Growers Cooperative. Find out more about local produce, CSAs, and how to engage with the farmer's market this year during the pandemic. You can find them at wmgcoop.com. Thanks for joining us, you guys. Um, this is Sustainable Wellness's podcast, and we're going to be talking about human health and soil health and the ways that they overlap. Um, and I, right now is an important time to talk about it, obviously, because we've got this coronavirus um, that's taken over the globe and we're all sort of managing and mitigating and um, really lots of us are thinking about the future and um, you know, what, what the future holds and kind of recognizing this is a important time to make changes um, because whatever changes we implement now will be the ones that we carry forward with us um, once we're, you know, we've moved on and, um, maybe we're focusing on the next crisis, which might be um, climate and health related. <laughs> so um, I'll let you guys introduce yourself. Uh, we have today with us we have today with us we have um, Todd from Two Bears Farm. In are you guys in Whitefish? We are. Yep, just west of Whitefish. Okay, and then we have Pete and Megan from Barney Creek Livestock uh, near Livingston. Yep, Paradise Valley. Okay. Um, so Pete and Megan are sustainable ranchers. Um, and I'm going to let you guys introduce yourself. Okay. Um, I'd just like to say we have heard about Two Bear from um, my sister who lives in Kalispell, Michelle Finch. And she uh, just moved there recently and said, oh my gosh, you have to meet this couple. They're they're just like what you and Pete are about and all this stuff. So um, you oh. have been on our radar uh, and hopefully I will get to Kalispell to visit and come hunt you guys down. Um, you I'm should. nice. Don't, don't be afraid. <laughs> be afraid. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. Awesome. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I have, let's see, I married into to this ranch here um in the paradise valley i originally um i grew up in thompson falls um on, over by you guys um grew up on a ranch there my dad was a logger my mom was a librarian and my dad will say um he didn't he wasn't smart enough the first time to just do ranching he had to also do logging so he was involved in two losing um businesses so Anyway, uh, traveled a lot, lived a lot, never thought I'd move back to Montana, met Pete um, and his family, and they've been on this land um, for almost 125 years. It's been in their family. Um, and so I'll let Pete tell that story because it, it really is his, and I just um, kind of, I'm the labor and the, the one with the biggest mouth, so I'm generally the one that's talking about how awesome it is. Um, and how important it is that we pay attention to soil health. So I'm going to hand the at least the the ranching history part over to Pete. So <clears throat> I'm Pete Lennon, um, fourth generation on this ranch. My great grandparents bought it from a guy named Barney McGuire. Bought it from his estate back in 1900, so 120. 
Oh, sorry. Using, using math. Anyhow, and uh, it's been passed down, or it's been it's been purchased from one generation to the next. And uh, about oh six or seven years ago, my dad called me and said that uh, he didn't want to have to do this anymore. And if I wanted to figure what, out a way to keep the ranch and the family and keep it going, that I better figure out some way to do this. And that's kind of where we ended up here. Um, like I worked for the forest service I have for almost 30 years now. And so I'm gone in the summer, um, fighting fire and, uh, just trying to find low input ways to figure this out. It was how we started. It wasn't out of any grand scheme for soil health or saving the world or anything like that, but it's, it's evolved in that. Um, basically by looking at things like stop doing things that are costing you money and killing the world and start doing things that are simple and work with nature is kind of how we landed up, landed where we're at right now. Cool. That's awesome. Um, Todd, do you want to share a little bit about two bear and, and what you, what your philosophy is and how you guys function? Sure. My name's Todd Ulizio, and with my wife, Rebecca, we operate uh, 13 acres of certified organic vegetable production. And then we have another about 80 acres of just sort of pasture and riparian area. Uh, I think we got into it basically just we love to be outdoors. We love good food. We wanted to produce our own. That kind of grew into producing for friends and neighbors and it just kept growing from there and we had a lot of community support uh to the point now we're with the COVID-19 pandemic this year we've increased our CSA membership because it seems to be a good way to move produce mm. so we're at 342 shares this year wow a little terrifying given there's only seven <laughs> of us that work on the farm. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah. Wow. So that's going to be fun. <laughs> uh, have you guys started your CSAs yet? Have you started delivering? This, this week, we picked today for the first day. Wow. Yep. So in addition to you do a farmer's market. We do three week? farmer's markets a week, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. We do five CSA drops per week. So we har basically we harvest every morning. Every the first half of every day we're harvesting. And then we're usually have the truck on the road in the afternoon going somewhere. But it all goes within the valley. So we never really go more than 20 miles from the farm. Damn, that's a lot. That's that is a lot of farm to farm yeah, to tabling. <laughs> it is. That's awesome. That's incredible. I I can't quote specifically the increase in um, CSA uh, usage that we've had here in Missoula, but it's been significant since the pandemic. And um, so really the point of this podcast is kind of a, really it's an informational opportunity, educational opportunity for people to understand why it's important that we do this right now. Um, and like I said earlier, that whatever changes we make right now and whatever changes we implement as a society are going to be the ones that we take with us and they're going to stay. It's kind of a clutch time for change. And 
this is kind of a plea to like consumers, um, a plea to people with the economic and financial ability to purchase local food to do it. I think there's plenty of people out there that don't um, because they don't understand why it matters. Um, they can't, <clears throat> there just isn't a lot of um, opportunities for them to make the connection between uh, the climate crisis that we're facing and um, the human health crisis we're facing and how they're somewhat the same. Um, and I'm just going to rattle off a couple of, you know, health coaching facts for people here. Um, kind of, I didn't really know the numbers here, but I, I did some looking um, what the percentages of chronic disease in America. And it's significant. Um, so and this is from the CDC's website, six in 10 Americans, six out of 10 Americans have some form of chronic disease. So this is a kind of disease that lasts for several years or longer, possibly lifetime. And what falls in that category is endocrine dysfunction, metabolic disorders, cancer, autoimmune disorders, neurological conditions. Um, I'm probably missing some, but those are the big ones. And so that's in the adult population. In the, in the population of children, um, it's reported that there's 33% of all American children have some form of chronic disease. Um, and the WHO, the World Health Organization, did a comprehensive study in 2006 um, that identified environmental toxins as being one of the leading reasons for uh, childhood chronic disease. So, that's that's my spiel on it. Um, I think in America here, we're noticing maybe some things with our health and our our definition of health that could be improved upon. And since there's really no known remediation other than good health um, to having a positive outcome with this pandemic, I think that this conversation that we're about to have is gonna be crucial and possibly motivating people to understand why uh, climate health, why uh, soil health is going to make a difference for their health and um, um, and solving maybe the next pandemic. So this, I wanted to know more about carbon sequestration, the, how biodynamic farming works. Um, and, and then we're going to get into sort of the grid that you guys are trying to function in, in the, in the larger food system. But for right now, maybe just break down, and I'm going to start with um, Pete and Megan. Can you guys talk to me a little bit about carbon sequestration and your methods as uh, food producers? Yes, I am glad you mentioned that because I, <laughs> I was, oh my gosh, I forgot to mention that we are um practicing regenerative agriculture so basically um our number one premise is that we always put more into the land than we take and so of course first and foremost we focus on soil health um which the way we move our livestock and the way that we um do management pete had mentioned with inputs when you reduce your inputs into ranchers or farmers that means mm -hmm. you know the way you till if you till hey, um <laughs> hey there's the kids and then also 
the way that uh, we do things with our livestock, which is we don't pour warmer. Um, we're not organic. I will, I will um, be honest about that. That comes with a lot of different um, requirements and things for us that um, we just. But, but talk about that a little bit because I think that getting, I think that it's really difficult for smaller farmers to get that designation. Um, it's a process and I know I've actually spoken with Rebecca about this a little bit. Um, and so I, I want Todd to weigh in here um, when Megan's done talking about that certification process, but talk to us about what you guys do do and how do you mitigate weeds and um, look at pests and, and how do you manage the landscape being minimally impactful? So go ahead, Pete. I think the biggest thing there, Jesse, is we, we changed our mind from managing against things to managing for, and that's a big mindset change for a lot of producers, especially yeah. coming from a conventional ag background is, you know, you're managing against weeds, you're managing against in, undesirable insects, you're managing against all sorts of things, um, managing against disease in your cows. And so we started managing for the health of our pastures first, um, which starts with the soil health and managing for what we wanted, which was to have a lot of growing grass that grows as long as possible. And so our system of holistic plan grazing or managed grazing, whatever you want to call it, doesn't really matter. It's just a thoughtful plan to keep grass and whatever vegetation we have growing for the longest periods of time. Um, and then the part of the carbon sequestration is that the, the more plants are photosynthesizing throughout the year, the more carbon you're pulling out of the air and putting down in the soil. And to keep those plants vegetative, I mean, if you let your grass grow up and just let it mature and don't do anything with it, it only has a short period of time there in the season. But if we can manage that and prune it back a little bit with our cows, but not too much, we can pull that much more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. You know, the root exudates that pump the sugars into the soil, carbon, basically, um, to feed the bacteria is the big thing. And, you know, the human gut, the human um, immune system is not much different from the soil health in terms of, you know, when we put things like pesticides and herbicides on the soil, it's killing the microbiology, the same kind of microbiology that lives in your gut and in your system. Um, so if we avoid doing those killing actions and managing against things, we're allowing that biology to flourish and, and do its job and, and to feed the plants to sequester carbon. Um, yeah, the first time somebody made an analogy between the human stomach and, and the soil, I was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah. Totally makes sense. And so it's, the other thing that we like to flip, too, is that we, you know, when we talk about soil health, and I'll bet you um, two bears a lot like this, too, is that, you know, we manage the, that underground livestock and really pay attention, um, you know, to how we're managing those guys, too, because they're they're working really hard just as livestock on top of the ground are yeah and I think that's part of like I the way that you demonstrated that or the way that you explain that and 
managing against the land or managing against the things that are part of the land versus just letting optimizing them. I think that's part of the conversation that's been just driving me insane. I watched network news last night for like an hour and then I just was like, wow, I can't take this anymore because we're talking about this virus. We're talking about people's inability to be resilient towards this virus. And I don't want to get the coronavirus. I'm not out here like saying anything about the seriousness of this disease or this um, virus. But what I'm saying is what I'm seeing lacking from this conversation is um, our body's ability to fight this. And it's kind of like, I hope I'm going to be able to pull this off correctly, but it's kind of like we need to optimize our health. And you guys, the way that you're managing the land is to optimize the land in its natural state because that makes everything else better. And it's part of what I see missing from this conversation that's going on about this virus is we're not looking at why we are so ill and why we have such a lack of resilience against this virus. Um, why some people do and why some people don't. I know they're trying to figure a lot of stuff out and it, the situation's evolving daily. So I'm not criticizing anybody. I just don't see the conversation around optimizing health um, being focused on. And it certainly isn't a part of the conversation, um, generally speaking, when you're talking about the quality of your food, um, how it was grown or what, how to optimize um, the conditions at which your food is grown because the health of your soil is going to translate into the nutrient density of your food. And if you're putting things on your food that kill the bugs or the weeds that you don't want, um, that's going to get into your system too. And it's going to affect you. It's going to affect your water and it's going to affect your air quality and, 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 and so on and so forth. So um, that's a great explanation, Pete and Megan. Thank you so much. And Todd, I'm going to pass it off to you. Uh, what do you think, you know, in terms of how you guys manage your farm and, and um, talk to us a little bit about how you're integrated into the environment I think I, I want to start by just following up on what Pete said and maybe going even more basic. I think when we're in school, we learn about photosynthesis, right? Everybody remembers that lesson. You know, a plant takes sunlight and it takes some water and carbon dioxide and it produces sugar to feed the plant and it produces oxygen. And that's like our basic understanding of it. But what we were never taught was that actually those sugars are all made up of carbon, right? They're carbon-based sugars. And the plant doesn't just use them to feed itself. As Pete mentioned, it sends those sugars back out through its roots into the soil to feed life, the microbiome of the soil. And so that's how a plant sequesters carbon by pumping sugar, taking CO2 out of the air and making sugars and pumping it into the soil. So the benefit is carbon sequestration, <clears throat> but the other benefit is it's increasing the diversity in the soil. All those micro, that whole microbiome is going out and it's breaking down soil. It's getting nutrients that the plant roots can't reach. And so it is creating nutrition, right? And so the same approach by having plants growing all the time in the soil it's the best thing you can do both for carbon sequestration soil health and human health and i think that's really what 
regenerative agriculture is trying to get at. This idea of having bare soil all the time and lots of tillage and chemical fallow, all of that stuff works against all of those things. Right. And so just the basic idea of, you know, I think we're having to relearn agriculture a little bit, moving away from tillage or at least trying to minimize it. You know, you're trying to keep the soil life intact um, because we know that that's where nutrition really stems from. Yeah. And that's something that conventional agriculture skips right over. They, they just assume that soil kind of holds the plant roots in place, you know, and they just spoon feed the plants the nutrients they think it needs. And so it's an oversimplified well, system. It's, it's um, like they it's like they skip the magic, right? Yeah. <laughs> like all kids should still and all adults should still believe in that magical part instead of, you know, I love the how you said spoon feed the plant, like that's just such a mad scientist sort of um visual and I think we're missing that magical part and consumers have been so far removed from that. I mean, I think that if you're if you've committed to a CSA and you get farmers markets and like you're, you're getting a part of that, you're getting to know your farmer or your rancher, but you think about so many people um, that you're friends with that just go to the store and they, they miss all the magic, you know, that's, that's the best part. That's what we do. And it, right. it's, it's hard because when you go to the store, you buy your food, you know, if you're buying broccoli, you buy it by the pound. You don't buy yeah. it by the nutrient density. So yeah. the consumer has no tool to really understand. So it's, I don't think that the health issues we're seeing with COVID-19, I think existed before that, right? We're seeing American oh, health statistics dropping and we're not making the link of how we manage, how we grow our food in this country and how it's changed in 75 years and how closely that tracks the human health decline. Yeah. So just getting that information out there. Absolutely. And I think that the one thing that the, this, the COVID virus has brought to the surface is all of our weaknesses as a culture and just physically um, it's, it's really brought a lot of things to light that needed to be uh, brought to light. And so it's great that you guys are here sharing about what you do because uh, it's just not something that's getting covered on the news and, yeah, like I said last night, I watched the network news for like an hour and I was like, I just really feel like this is just playing on my emotions and it's not really reporting anything useful. So um, so as consumers go to the market and I guess what are some, what are some ways that consumers can get a hold of local food. And, and I wanted to touch back on a question that I had brought up earlier about, um, oh my God, what the hell did I bring up earlier? Um, oh, the grid that you guys are working on. So, you know, being, being a part of uh, conventional agriculture and then trying to do it differently, how do you feel like the deck, the deck is stacked against you in terms of how you get food to consumers? I, I think the stack, the deck is totally stacked against us. Yeah. You have big corporate interests pushing conventional agriculture. You basically have government agencies, which by and large support that type of agriculture. 
you have global distribution systems uh, focusing primarily on efficiency and profit. So it's a whole different system. I mean, the system we function in is a values-based system. We're not focused on, we have to make money to exist, but it's not why we do what we do, right? We're trying to bring other values back into our communities, back into our food system. So I, don't, I wonder sometimes, are we trying to change that system or are we just creating an alternative, right? And, and that's kind of what I feel like. Uh, trying to change what system the are we part of the global industrial food system and are we going to try to ever change that or are we just going to start our own kind of local regenerative system and hope people join in because i think that's the way to go we don't have the political clout we don't have the lawyers we don't have the funding i think i think that's the that's the important piece here is that this is an edu this is a time of educational opportunities if people are sitting in their house hyperventilating in a brown paper bag about how bad the situation is, I'm encouraging everybody to get out there and figure out solutions. And as far as I'm concerned, and this is a pillar of my business and what I, my, my work and what I do is that I want to hook people up and consumers up with you and Pete and Megan because, and everybody, all the local farms here, because that is the solution. Um, yeah, we, we need to get our, we need to get the information out. People want to hear our story. And then that's really the way for every single person to engage is how, how do they buy food? What is the source of their food and how do they choose to support, you know, where they spend their money really matters. And I don't think, I don't think consumers realize how much leverage they have, but they have a ton. They have they have so much and that's the point that's the really important and clutch part right now is that it's all consumers we are in charge and so if we and if i'm just gonna say the middle class if the middle class just decided that they were going to buy from local food sources it would change the market for the entire united states and that food that you guys are producing would be you know, all the, the local farms everywhere, local food movements would shift huge and it would be more accessible to everybody. So Megan, what did you want to say? Oh, Pete was going to go ahead. No, I, I think what's stacked against us, I agree with Todd, the system, you know, agribusiness is huge. Basically all the companies peddling chemicals and the middlemen, they're taking like so much of the profit out of this deal. And I don't think, I honestly don't think that, and I always try to make this point. I don't think conventional egg, nobody's out there trying to kill the planet nope, or trying nope, to do anything nope. bad. They're just trying to survive and do the best they can with what they know. Yeah. But what would make it, what would make our neighbors do what we do is if, like you said, if, if somebody puts their dollar, their food dollar into the right system, oh, no, I don't want to say right system, into a system like ours, then, you know, our neighbors across the road would be like, well, look what Pete and Meager are doing. Maybe we should do that. And right. this, ha unfortunately, this has to be somewhat economically driven. That's, and so yeah. your food dollar is super important on making people adjust their practices to what's beneficial to their bottom line and also beneficial to our world. So I read this um, 
it's, um, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, but it's called Regen Friends. It's out of San Francisco, but they surveyed across the nation and it was some, it was a really high percentage. Of course, it's been a couple months and then you have to pay for the report. <laughs> so I only got five pages of the free part. Um, but the, the statistic that resonated with me the most in terms of consumers and regenerative agriculture um, was they wanted to know what their ranchers or farmers were doing to impact the environment. And so I know that we do that already, but just ensuring that that message is part of the story. And I think talking about sequestering carbon, I think talking about all the things we've talked about, um, somehow just over and over that message that by them and like what you guys had said too, that by buying, they're a part of that holistic system. Because if we, if they're not a, if they're not a product or they're a result of what we make, but they're part of the system and they're in our community and we're feeding them. Um, Pete could tell you a story about uh, a situation. We went to Hawaii and how they ship their beef. And we were like, you guys should be feeding your Island. And yes. it was insane. They shipped them. They trucked them uh, 12 truckloads halfway across the Island. Then they got on a shipping container. Then they shipped them to, to Oakland. Then they shipped that beef down to Texas. And we're like, Oh my gosh, they're on double decker shipping containers. And then how long, what was their loss? And then first and foremost, how they treated their animals that way was just like the, Oh, it was crazy. But everybody's just trying to, they're just doing it. It's crazy. They're doing it because that's what they've been trained to do. And, and I, and again, like Pete said, I, I don't think anyone's out there trying to like ruin the planet or whatever, but we live at the cut. We live in America and America is the hub of capitalism. We've all been conditioned to believe that more is better grow and grow and grow. And that's always going to be better. And I think when that kind of uh, model is set into place, the management thought is the greatest, you know, and this is something that I learned in the forest service, um, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number. And I think that's kind of been the thought process with food production is that how can we feed as many people as possible for yeah. as little as possible. And that system that got set up wasn't thinking about, you know, the magic, like you were talking about, it wasn't talking about the health of the soil. It wasn't talking about the health of the plants or the animals or the people that were eating the food. It was just, how do we create more without looking at what the downsides of it are? Yeah. Um, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy. Cause at some point you'd think we'd stop and look like right now we grow enough food for 14 billion people. Right. And there's only yeah. 7.5 billion of us and prices are stuck being low. Like every year ag prices are low for commodity crops. Yet every farmer is focusing on increasing their yields. Yeah. And it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know. I guess what's interesting about regenerative agriculture is if every conventional farmer switched to those practices simply to save money, to reduce their inputs. Yeah. That would be great. I mean, I don't right. care if they believe in soil health or yeah. chemical free, right? It would still have the same result on the planet. 
right? Yeah. And it would benefit it would benefit them because right now I don't think the average commodity farmer is seeing too many of the benefits of being a farmer, as Pete yeah. mentioned, right? It's the middlemen and it's the industries, the food processors. Absolutely. So. Yeah, absolutely agree with that 100%. Um, and Todd, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your guys' certification. So you're USDA certified organic, is that correct? That is correct. Touchy subject. <laughs> I know. I know. It sucks. But I want to know for the people, I want you to tell the people out there, because if you go to the store, there is so much, if you have children plug their ears there's so much bullshit on the shelf that's like this is natural and this is uh non-gmo and da 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 all this all this labeling um so when someone, they call it greenwashing and so when someone sees usda organic products tell me what sort of hoops a small farmer had to jump through to get that certification talk to me about how much it costs because people in their mind when they're going to shop they look for that label if i'm at a grocery store and i'm just buying things from the grocer i look for that label but if i'm at a farmer's market it's a little bit different and oftentimes i will just go talk to the farmer and say like hey well what's your guys's practices and how do you how do you grow your crops but at a grocery store um tell the consumer how you got that i mean it's not an easy certification for a small farmer to get so take us through no, and I think you're exactly right. The USDA organic label is basically a marketing tool. Mm -hmm. If you have face-to-face -face contact with your farmer and you can understand what they do, you don't really need a marketing label. I mean, it really is intended for the consumer who does not know who the farmer is and they can't talk to them. So basically, to become certified, uh, you can use no synthetic fertilizers or herbicides or pesticides uh, you have to practice crop rotation you have to be able to track you have to buy organic seed whenever possible and you get inspected every year uh, an inspector comes out to your farm mm -hmm. they walk around they make sure you're not using any prohibited substances they go through a whole management plan uh, crop rotations pollinator habitat weed management and then uh, you have to get, you have to be able to show from seed to sale an entire audit trail. Like I have to be able to show my ins inspector what I planted, when I planted it, how much I harvested, where I sold it to make sure that I'm not growing 50 pounds of organic broccoli and selling 2,000 pounds of it at market, right? You know? Okay. So they're trying to prevent fraud. It's, it's a lot of work. It's, you pay for the inspection, you pay $900 for the application. So, and then the inspection is probably about 400. And then at the end of the year, you have to pay 0.5% of your gross revenue back to the USDA. <laughs> just, to use, just to use their label, which in our market, we don't really need because we yeah. see our yeah. customers face to face. Yeah. But what's most frustrating about that is the law behind certified organic, uh, the Organic Farming Practices Act is entirely soil based 
and really lays out what organic agriculture is. And right now, as we've talked about, there's a lot of corporations and large ag businesses that are trying to get into the organic market because it's such a fast growing marketplace, but they're trying to water down the regulations. And because we have a captive USDA, they are allowing that to happen. And so now what I would tell the consumer is, yes, you are guaranteed when you see that label that you are getting food that does not have synthetic fertilizer or chemical residue on it. And from a health standpoint, that is super important. Yeah. What's kind of a bummer now is that hydroponics have just been approved for organic certification, even though there's no soil in that method. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of animal welfare rules out there, like free range, access to pasture things that have not been, they've been recommended, but never passed. So it's not by any means a perfect label. It's really expensive for organic farmers. Yeah which is kind of frustrating given conventional farmers seem to be getting subsidies and we're paying to do what we do. So that's a little out of whack, but it is still the strongest label in the marketplace. If you are worried about your health and you don't want your kids exposed to pesticide residue, the organic label USDA label is the only one that guarantees that. Right. I always encourage clients to, eat organic unless they can talk to their farmer about the practices um, because conventional, conventionally grown produce and grain cannot, I mean, you really cannot get those substances off um, your food. And, and, and if it's, if you're just buying the whole food, that's one thing you really can't get that stuff off. If you're buying conventionally grown food that, um, say it's got like a, you know, it's, it's a processed food and it's, it's just in there, say like goldfish. There's one thing I would love to see never hit the stands of the grocery store again is goldfish <laughs> fucking crackers. I hate them. I, oh my well, God. Ch- children's cereal, yes. like nine, nine out of 10 of the eating children's cereal is, yeah. has, you know, glyphosate residue in it. Loaded with glyphosate. Um, and yeah. people are still feeding it to their kids. Like, there's this whole mindset of if it's on the shelf, the, you know, the conversation at the top level of the FDA and the EPA has made this food safe. And that's just yeah. not true. And I guess I wanted to ask one more question on the topic of the USDA um, certification. And, and you touched on this a little bit when you talked about it being a, a growing marketing label um, with bigger farmers. You guys are committed to growing food this way because it's, it's, it's in line with your values, but for farmers or bigger farms um, who maybe just want the label to get that market, how much wiggle room is there for somebody to loosen the standards or maybe not follow the standards to the T? I mean, if, if you want to commit fraud, you can try to commit fraud, but in terms of chemicals, you can't use them. But I think we're talking about nutrition here and this is as well a controversial statement probably, but I would say organic food is healthier for you because it lacks pesticide residue. It is not a guarantee that it is more nutritious for you. The only thing that guarantees nutrition is if the farmer is managing their soils and amending their soils. 
If you're a corporate organic farm focused on profit, you may not choose to amend your soil for human health any more than a conventional corporate farm. I think that's really the big difference with small farmers is so many of us are trying to do the right thing. And we know we're never going to get paid for this because like I said, we sell our food by the pound. So why do I spend all this money on soil amendments, compost, cover cropping? Because it's the right thing to do. And I know it improves the nutrition of the food going into my community. I'm never going to see money for that. But that's, I think that's the difference. If people want to know why, why not just buy organic in the grocery store? Why go to farmer's market? I think that's, that's the reason. Mm-hmm. What did you want to say, Pete and Megan? No, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, you can be organic, but you can till the hell out of your soil yeah. to prevent weeds. And that's not doing any good. Um, so, I, you know, really what it comes down to in my mind is, and, not, um, and I'm not knocking organic certification. I think it's great that you guys do that. But to me, it really comes down to what you're saying, Jesse, is knowing your farmer and your rancher. Because no matter what you're certified as, it really has to do with that relationship with the people that are you're providing food for. And them knowing and taking your word that, hey, I'm going to do right by you, right by my animals, right by my crops, right by the soil. And you can come out anytime and take a look and we'll walk around the fields and we'll harvest crops together. We'll move the cows together and we'll, we'll have a relationship. So, you know, you can trust me because it really does come down to your word. Cause you could commit fraud, like you said, Todd. (laughs) Absolutely. Pretty big case of that earlier this year. Yeah. And really the reason we do it, I mean, we, we want to set the bar high, but it all, you know, simply that a, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And if you have yeah. a lot of customers, it's easy to just have that label there because then yeah. hopefully they know it saves you from having to explain to every single person what it is you do. It at least gives them a starting point. It totally. Yeah. So I have a question for Todd, if that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Let it rip. So, one of the biggest challenges for us is um, trying to find leased ground. You know, and I think Kalispell's similar, Paradise Valley, you're talking $10,000 an acre kind of ground, if not higher. Um, trying to find people that are willing to lease you ground that you can put these practices into place and in managing their, their land and for them is one of the biggest challenges for us. I was just curious if that's similar in your area it is i mean i know i know one of the main uh farmers trig cook who's in kalispell i think he leases land from 56 different landowners oh my god for his operation and a couple years ago he planted one parcel and then they built a ford dealership on it right after he had seeded so for him, it's a major issue, right? There's no land tenure. There's no stability. It's really hard for him to use regenerative agriculture because he doesn't know what next year holds. Right. Uh, we're, we're not in that situation. We work on a way smaller scale. I mean, our entire income 
and the income of seven employees is coming literally off of about 10 acres of ground. And so it's, it's just, it's, it's a matter of scale, I think. Well, um, and one thing that you guys have done and we've done as well is, okay, you're at a relatively small scale. Mm -hmm. So you've increased your gross margin per unit. I mean, your products you sell for a premium, hopefully. And, and we do as well, but that only goes so far. So, you know, if you're going to apply the capitalist scheme to this is, you know, you increase your gross margin per unit or you increase your scale or you can do both. And to me, that's the biggest challenges. And to me, it's, it's not a, it's not that we're trying to make more money out of the deal. I, I want to be able to affect more, more ground um, and trying to get that through to people that we could potentially lease is, is super challenging. I mean, that's, that's probably one of our biggest challenges is like, Hey, we could do this. I'm not going to pay you what the guy who's going to put the synthetic fertilizer on your ground and cut hay off of, but we could do this in the long-term benefits for the world are considerable and for our communities. So we have a lot of um, second home landowners yeah. in the Valley that have a lot of land that they, you know, they're accustomed to, you know, drop and leave um, cattle producers, you know, which is the norm. And we've tried to communicate to them that, Hey, we're going to regenerate the land and, sequester carbon and it's just like pulling teeth and the biodiversity that comes back and like i'm telling you we will pay you to do this to regenerate your land and i think that that's another not only the consumers buying for us our products but also the consumers that have land that they could be regenerating that contribute to saving the planet right you know we're kind of like a twofold i think both of us operation maybe yeah it's you know some of it's timing i think the I, the concept of regenerative agriculture isn't isn't super new but it's still new even within the ag community right so if you're a landowner and you're not reading all these articles it, you know it's not even in your part of your mindset yet so i guess i'd say ho hopefully that will change in time uh and maybe that again is consumer driven, right? As people hear more and more about trends in food and what consumers are doing, maybe that starts to open up the eyes of landowners that, hey, maybe this is what we want to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Pete. You know, for us, we don't really focus on the margin of our crops, but what we do focus on is direct to people, right? There is, unlike commodity agriculture, we don't have any middlemen. We try to produce as much fertility as we can. We do all our own sales. We do all our own distribution. We keep it within 20 miles. That allows us to get a better price and also allows the consumer to get a better price. That's really, I think, why vegetable farmers can be successful. You know, and I know when scale goes up, if you're a wheat grower or uh, cattle, it's, it's a different scale and that it's trickier. You know, it's hard to sell 10,000 acres of wheat locally, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. 
Yeah, and I think that, you know, now more than ever, I mean, in terms of, of meat production, uh, it's important that people understand that there are local meat sources available. And I think that anybody living in Montana has to recognize that we are so fortunate in terms of what's local and what's available to us as consumers that if we don't act on it, we're putting these things that could come forward as we progress out of this pandemic as being part of positive change. And so I think it's, you know, and meat is on everybody's mind right now. I mean, not everybody's mind, but it's on a lot of people's mind because, you know, it's this kind of crucial decision that the administration is making around um, meat factories and, and, and what to do with, with that situation. And so um, if you're living in Montana, it, you have access, I mean, a, anywhere in Montana, you have access to local meat and, um, you know, Barney Creek is one and there's several here in Missoula and, and several in Whitefish. And so um, go that route. If you have the economic ability to go that route, go that route, because that's part of the change the world needs to see right now as people um, locking into those uh, food producers. Um, so, Yeah, and it's not the animal welfare issue is easy to see, but I think what's more important is people would need to start, you hear so much criticism about meat these days, and to right. understand that having animals on the landscape actually can, if done properly, yeah. improve the landscape. It can increase carbon sequestration, and that's a message that uh, needs to get out there more. I agree. 100%. And from a health standpoint, um, I think it's, you, you kind of, people need meat. I mean, it's, a, I think it's pretty easy to get malnourished if you're following a diet that doesn't include meat. So anyways, I'll let Pete and Megan talk about managing the land with animals on it being a positive change with, um, with climate and, and this current situation. Yeah, I, I think absolutely. The bit, I mean, <laughs> If we didn't, even if we didn't talk about like managing the cows, we, the way we did, we, the way we do, excuse me. Um, but if you looked at just the economic system, I mean, I don't know how many cows we raise in Montana, but I'm sure it's plenty to rate, feed all the people in Montana. Yep. And the fact that we're putting them on a truck and shipping them out to the Midwest to feed them out feedlot to then take them to one of the centralized processing plants to be harvested and then taken to a distribution center and then shipped back here. Just the carbon footprint from that is huge. Huge. It, and then if you add the, you know, the practices, the management practices that are actually helping the soil into that, if even if people went down to their conventional producer you know, down the Bitterhead or up the Flathead and said, hey, I would buy a beef from you and I would, you know, pay you a decent price for it. That would lead to a situation where, you know, would have more local processing plants um, and that's going to create jobs and that's going to keep our, our money local and it's going to promote a way of doing things that's better for the environment. Even if you didn't, go into the intensive management that we're doing where we're moving our cows every day, if not multiple times a day. Um, all those things are beneficial 
Yep, absolutely. And increased productivity and the benefits that has on soil. I, you know, I always tell people that we start this out as an economic driver. And then the benefit is that if we do it correctly, we're, we're benefiting human, human and soil health. And that, that's, that's huge. Yeah. Rarely is there an occasion where there isn't something that benefits the, the health of the climate that also doesn't benefit the health of the people. It's pretty. Absolutely. I think, I, I guess what I wonder is that you can tell like when you're eating vegetables that are, that are grown in the manner that two bear does, you can taste it. You can taste when meat's been raised in a certain way. You can taste the grass. I mean, mm -hmm. we have a chef that prepares a lot of our stuff at Chico and we've had him in a few events and he will say he can, you know, there's five senses for chefs and they can taste that in their produce and they can taste that in their vegetables. And I think it's really bringing the palate back um, mm -hmm. to our consumer as well and, and training them that you can taste that. Like I will even challenge people, you know, Barney Creek isn't the only beef in the game. You know, I challenge you to taste some different grass fed, grass finished, products because some of them are raised on the range and if you are really you have a palate for elk or venison then you might that might appeal to you a little bit more but ours is we like the joel salatin method like let's feed them a salad bar and see you know what if we put some chicory in there we put some you know red clover can you taste that um so i think that it's really opening doors to being able to shop around and, and what your palate appeals to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think a good example of that is my, my children They're you know, I've got an eight year old and a five year old and um, I've raised them eating food that I is in line with my values. And, and now they're getting older and they're out there in the world. And I'm like, you know, they're like asking me, Hey, can we try this and try that? And I'm like, you know, go for it. Just try whatever. Um, because their palates have developed a taste for things that are good for them. And so they eat those things that maybe aren't good for them and they try them out and they're like that. I feel like crap. I mean, they can really notice how they feel and what it tastes like. And I think that that's possible for anybody um, eating food. If you develop your palate in a certain way to recognize food that's higher in quality um, for your body, um, and it's probably is indefinitely higher in quality for the environment. Um, then you just grow accustomed to those tastes and you become consumers that are, you know, have different standards. Um, and I think that's possible to do without, you know, throwing yourself into bankruptcy. And I think we have to get real about the fact that as purchasers and consumers, um, we can't say I can't afford that and then also be going to Starbucks every day and buying a $5 shit latte and zipping up our $200 boots. You know, I mean, we gotta, we gotta put things in priority. And I think that the way that we take care of ourselves and where we get our food from is, you know, a number one goal, um, to, to tighten up those standards a little bit if we want to be resilient for this pandemic and, and the next one because, you know, unless we make some dramatic changes quickly, um, 
our planet and our health will continue to be in crisis because we're kind of mirrors of each other. So one last thing I want to touch on um, before we go, <clears throat> I don't know what you guys have to offer this, but one of the things that I uh, really would like to see be different, I'd like to see be better. And I love local farmers because you can just talk to them. And I'm going to ask you guys this question of like packaging, packaging standards for putting your food on the market and available to people. Uh, what sort of stumbling blocks are in place for you there and what sort of requirements are put on you? I'll just defer to Todd on this and then cause we've been talking a lot. I apologize. No, <laughs> no, I, I feel the same <laughs> that I'm talking too much. Um, I think vegetables are the easiest. Honestly, when I look at what animal, whether it's dairy or meat and processing rules there's so many regulations, I feel like the vegetable world got it pretty easy in the whole deal. Um, we're not required to do a whole lot of anything, right? Uh, basic sanitation rules, you can be GAP certified. Um, what is GAP certification? Uh, uh, good agricultural practices. A lot of restaurants or like hospitals will require it. It's just like a general set of rules that farms follow. But honestly, um, like that you're still subject to health department rules in the county sanitarium, but honestly, um, you're mainly, you're, you're doing the right thing primarily because, right, you don't want to, you don't want product liability issues. You don't want to serve bad food that puts you at risk. But um, I guess it's not a profound answer, but I'll just, I'll just say we have it easy compared to what Pete and Megan are about to say, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I mean, one of the biggest struggles we have is, you know, if you're going to sell meat to individuals or you're going to sell it in a grocery store or anything like that, I mean, you, you can't wrap, it can't be like what I ate growing up. It's not wrapped in paper and stuck in your freezer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all in plastic uh. and vacuum sealed this and that. And I mean, there's a huge difference between if you shove ground beef in a tube that's a very small amount of plastic or you put it in a vacuum sealed one pound right. deal. Um, and then just the inspection process is, I don't want to say crazy, but I think we've become so paranoid about safe food that a lot of these local processors for us to be able to just go to somebody who's a custom meat cutter and then turn around and sell it privately. Mm -hmm. We can't do that. We have to sell you the animal and then if you back out on that, then who are we going to sell it to? Um, so a lot of those rules are ridiculous. The other one is poultry. Oh, God. As much as Megan hates me for saying this. No, I, would, I love it because it's so, yeah. No, I would love to introduce, you know, chickens and things to our place. I'd love to follow the cows with chicken tractors. But the only way we're going to do that and make it economically viable is to be able to process our own birds. And that, that doesn't bother me one bit. I'm sure I could sell birds hand over fist in Paradise Valley and Livingston and Bozeman, but in the state of Montana, you can't do that. Well, there's one processor in Darby. And yeah, so you'd have to ship them all the way from Livingston, yeah. Montana over to Darby to turn around and bring them back here and, and sell them. And there's some people that are doing that. But And we joined their CSA so we could get yeah, fresh we farm did. 
because I can't. Chickens. Chicken. But, you know, there are just so many regulations that have been put on stuff that don't make any sense, right. especially in this environment. Yeah, exactly. It's it's not you that those regulations are for. It's for the the mass production of meat that happens on, you know, feedlots and, and whatever. Um, and I, I think, think if you, people, go ahead, Todd. I'd say if you have a willing consumer and a willing producer, right? If you want to buy chickens from a farmer and they want to grow them for you, you should be able to do that. The fact yeah. that government <laughs> regulations that are all fear-based Right. You know, they don't make sense in the real world and they end up limiting the food system, right? They're picking winners and losers. They're yeah. supporting huge industrial ag at the expense of local farmers. That's, it's a big problem. It goes way beyond consumers and farmers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you go, like, there were probably six or seven dairies when I was growing up in the valley and we had a dairy farm from the time I was nine until I was 18 and then I got I was the youngest of five kids when I graduated from high school magically the dairy went away um <laughs> but yeah the labor graduated anyhow point being is you can't buy raw milk in Montana legally for human consumption nope and I guarantee that Jesse and a lot of people that I know would pay extra money to come to your dairy farm to get raw milk out of the tank that hasn't been pasteurized, hasn't been touched, and they would take the risk that they're going to get some sort of bad illa. Yep. To be able to get those extra nutrients that you're not going to get once you heat it up. Yeah. Well, to, to be able to get the enzymes that are a natural part of the milk so that I can digest the, the, the proteins in the milk. And that's the thing with we've got like a rampant issue with food allergies, and we've bastardized the food so hard i mean it's not that people are like the shit out of it <laughs> yeah i mean it's not like people are born and they're just like allergic to everything i mean it's like what happens to us with what we're exposed to and and that we're not it's not natural for us and we're not responding to it well obviously um based off of some of the statistics i rattled off earlier um so yeah i mean i think that there's a way that like the federal government has has you know established this great sort of um protection process for consumers because there was a time when there wasn't any and it needed to be done but like anything it needs to be revised over time and to meet the needs uh that are currently existing and and the way that it's in place now does not meet the needs of the local food producers it makes things harder for them so for you guys. Absolutely. And I think Todd hit on it. It's the choice. We should be given the choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I just relate a personal story is, I mean, when I was growing up, I would take a glass gallon jar down to the milk tank and I filled up every night and I probably drank like, I don't know, 10 gallons of milk a week. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that, cause I had the metabolism for it apparently, but yeah. And I was never sick. And once I hit college and started drinking milk that wasn't from our tank, I can't drink milk without getting sick. 
I, yeah, he gets so sick. Yeah, I don't want to talk to you on this podcast about what happens to me, but it's not good. <laughs> it's a milk closion. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I do have a friend that um, I want to have Pete try her milk, but that's the genetics. Have you guys heard of the A1 versus the A2 genetics? Yeah. So she has a milk herd that's A2 genetics. But the way she gets around this, well, not gets around, but works with the, the law is that she can sell certain shares. And so she has certain dairy customers that she milks her A2 cows and then they own the cow. Interesting. Super interesting. Um, but that is one, she's doing Wait. really well. She makes awesome cheese and the best yogurt I've ever had. Awesome. That's awesome. That's cool. Well, I will, we'll finish this up real quick. I just want to ask one last thing and I want each of you to tell me what's one thing you want consumers to know about farmers like yourselves, farmers and ranchers like yourselves, as we are stepping into kind of a brave new world. I, this is me again. I don't want them to be afraid. The COVID has presented huge opportunities and has opened a lot of doors. Um, and I feel like you guys were saying this as well with your increases. We've also seen increases in our sales. Um, but I think that take the time and the opportunity to drive somewhere or, I mean, I've got people from Chicago asking to order meat. And I'm like, who's in your area? Let's get on eatwild.com and find out who's in your area. Because I think if we can all refer each other and link arms, the stronger we will be um, as a force to provide really good food. Mm -hmm. And I'll just add to that real quick. I'd say <clears throat> this is all about health. You touched on it a little bit, and I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit trail, but, you know, you look at healthy soil, and in a drought, when things are stressed, those plants, um, that soil will be resilient, which is what we need in our system. And I think if you look at that and make the analogy with human health is, yes, I don't want to get COVID either. I'm not going out there licking doorknobs. <laughs> but... I, I can't imagine that you don't have a better chance of doing well with getting an infection of that type of a virus if you're not in better health. So if you, if you want to support your human health, you got to support soil health. To do that, you have to support farmers and ranchers that are doing things in a way that is trying to benefit the soil and building and th that is regenerative. Yep. I don't know if I can improve upon that. That was really pretty much the whole point of this conversation right there. <laughs> um, do you want to say anything, Todd, or are you done? Does that cover it for you? I mean, yeah, I think it's everything we hit on. You know, it's in the consumer's best interest to support local farmers. You know, you, let, you mentioned network news nothing that seems to be coming out of the federal national level 
it doesn't make any sense. But if you look at your own community, right, we can affect change in our own communities. And I think that's where people need to engage. Whatever it is about, like, don't shut the TV off, right? Go outside, talk to your neighbors, engage in your community. If that means supporting local farms and ranches, great. But I think that's where that's where we need to put our effort. Absolutely. Totally. Thanks. And I just want to mention that at the, at the, in the notes of this episode, there's going to be several links um, to hook people up with different ways of connecting with local farms. So um, look for that. And Western Montana Growers Association is one. And I know Pete and Megan have a couple that they are hooked up with. If you want to rattle those off, I would take them down and I'll add them in. Um, Arrow, A-E-R-O, is a big one. Okay. Uh, with their abundant Montana site. There's a new site that just started called farmshake.com, yep. which is an online farmer's market. I sent you that. And then Western Sustainability Exchange is another one on this side of the, the state that's handy. Right. Great. Okay, cool. And if you could not mention that I work for the USDA, Jesse, that would be really handy. <laughs> I used to work for the USDA too, friend. I, me me like too. I, said, I mean, they've put things in place that have protected consumers. They really have. But it doesn't apply. People need to be making decisions on much more of a local level than what they're allowed to at this point. So, okay. Thanks, guys.